One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Phil, it is, of course, lovely to talk to you again. And, of course, myself, like half of the country, was glued to the television the other night for the Late Late Show tribute, commemoration and celebration of Gay Byrne, who I know was a great dear friend of yours. And you were there in the front row, like so many in the audience that had a personal relationship with the man himself as a colleague and as a friend. And my sympathies to you on that account, because you would have had a lot to do with each other down through the years. I think I did my first Late Late Show when I was, wait, let me see, 1967, after wow. I won the Eurovision with Puppet on a String. Now, that's a long time ago. So I would have been on the Late Late Show in various guises, you know, every couple of years, I suppose, since. And Gay was always, he was a big music fan and was knowledgeable. And you knew that the most effective way to reach your audience, whether you had a new CD that you, you, that you just recorded and released, or you had a new tour upcoming, the fast track to reaching the Irish public was to do a Late Late Show. It was as mm-hmm. important as that. Yes, and so often over the course of that night and the week and since, people have said, of course, he could make make you overnight for sure. But I mean, when I think back to you having your very first interview, was it, you said, 1967? yeah, probably on the string. That would have been, I suppose, one of your first major fora for sitting down and doing an interview. Like, up to that point, you would have not necessarily been front and centre being an interviewee? Not at all. I would have been of no interest to anybody, yeah. quite frankly, no. I mean, but then all of a sudden, uh, you know, as a rookie from Derry, I'd, I'd only spent a couple of years. It seemed like a lot longer, mind you, at the time. But a few years after going to London, you know, knocking doors and trying to make some kind of a foothold in the music industry, to win the Eurovision Song Contest back then was a major, was a major breakthrough. Because back in those days, it was a major event. You know, everybody in the country would have been watching the Late Late Show. And everybody in the country would have been watching the Eurovision. Mm. So, yeah, all of a sudden, I would have been, I would have been of interest to you, like the late, late. And, of course, I grabbed it with both hands. I was enjoying this newfound fame. And how soon into your conversations with Gay, then, did he start going into your background and your family as opposed to just chatting about the music? Did he prise open the personal life straight away with you? Well, he did it very gently, you know. He was such a superb broadcaster. You never felt that he was probing, you know. Mm. You never felt that he was kind of poking the bear. But talking of families, there was one occasion some years back when Geraldine, my wife Geraldine, had released a new album called Golden Silver Days, and uh, the record label sent it into the Late Late Show when Gay was producer to say, this is our new album. These are a couple of tracks we think would really suit the Late Late Show. Well, uh, Gay came back and said, yes, we like the album. We'd like you to do a track called Don't Fly Too High which was not the track that Geraldine wanted to do, not the track that the record label wanted to do, certainly mm-hmm. not the track that I wanted to do. But Gay said, no, this is the track. Trust me, this is the track. Because the song, 
Don't Fly Too High, was a little simple little kind of a kid song. And when we recorded it, I remember very well, it was all slightly what you'd say, a little bit twee, you know. After we'd recorded the voice, I said to Geraldine, I think what this track needs is a kind of kids' choir. So I, I said to her, God, where am I going to get a kids' choir? And she said, what about our own house? So we had the six kids yeah. come into the studio and sang the chorus of Don't Fly Too High. So now we get the Late Late Show. Gay has spotted that rather than just Geraldine with an orchestra or this, that, and other singing one of the tracks, he saw, he knew what his audience wanted. He knew, no, the card to play here, Geraldine, is to come on with Phil and the six kids, who on that stage went an age from like five up to like 12 or 13. Oh my God, did you like the Von Trapp family? Not like the Von Trapps, that's what yeah. he called us, yeah. Of course, the song that became a big hit and it was one of the most played songs on local radio over in the West. And so it just proves that Gay knew his audience, you know. I mean, I mm. thought I knew better because we had picked a completely different track, but Gay had his finger on the pulse. He knew, he knew what his audience was. He knew what the Irish people wanted to see. It's sometimes like a playwright handing their work over to a director, you know, where the director will see something utterly different in his script. And like that, Gay Byrne obviously had that that finger on the pulse, you yeah. call it, and that overall eye to know what will make a connection through the TV or yeah. over the arch with, with the public and, and definitely made a difference. And uh, I know you would have had a, a tremendous loss of a, of a good friend as well as a colleague there this week. Yeah, he was he was quite excited. You know, he had a great generosity. It's been many many, many things about, have been said about Gay through the through the uh, the last number of days about his generosity, about his professionalism. The only time the only time we ever crossed swords, I have to tell you this. After very shortly after I wrote the town I love so well, it was brand new. I just recorded it with uh, with Luke Kelly, and that album was just about to be released. And then, as a kind of a as a kind of a just for posterity kind of a thing for myself, I recorded a single of the town loves so well and the record label again Polydor Records submitted it to the Late Late Show said this is a perfect song for, uh, for the Late Late Show now bear in mind the song was brand new nobody had heard it before this was absolutely coming out for the very first time so we get the word back from Gay no the song is too long oh, nice. the Late Late Show you need to cut you need to cut two or three verses of it so I mean I was I was kind of quite irate and I said, Does he not get it that this song is like, you know, an important I said, mm. No way, I'm not doing I'm not cutting any verses of it, we'll just walk away from the late nature and that's how it stayed. So there was a little bit of a little bit of a chill in the air between Gay and I for a while. Fast forward the tape then like twenty years or so, and I'm back on the late late show and what did they request me to do? The town I love so well. So I lost no time at all in reminding Gay <laughs> that the first time he heard the song, he told me it was too long and I would have to cut three verses. So, but you know, we we never had any really ongoing fallout. We we used to encounter each other in Donegal quite a lot. He loved being himself up there, and the Donegal people, West Donegal, they kind of they kind of wrapped themselves around Gay, you know, and gave him a little bit of security. He was he was somebody who was much loved up there. There was a great occasion when I find myself one day in the company of of Gay and a great Belfast songwriter, folk song collector called Davy Hammond. And we were standing on the corner of, of Kincashla at Iggy Murray's pub, and it happened to be on the day that Daniel O'Donnell was having an open house kind mm-hmm. of thing, and Daniel lived around the corner just up, up, the, uh, up the side road. And uh, that morning, the little village of Kincashla, which was a sleepy little crossroads the night before, that morning had now been transformed into Medjugorje. There were buses <laughs> coming and people were being disgorged in their hundred to queue up to go up and, and visit Daniel. So we're standing, Gay and, and Davy Hamlin and myself having three cups of coffee, watching all of this unfold. Out of one of these buses, towards the end of the whole visitation, this man is kind of gently lifted out of the bus. 
he stood out of the wheelchair and he wheeled up the street. Gabo turned to, to Davy Hammond and says, Chaps, if that man walks down the street, your show business career is over. <laughs> Oh, priceless, priceless. Uh, But I'm also thinking of those who were coming and streaming off the buses, arriving in Kincastle that day to have Daniel O'Donnell, Gay Byrne and Phil Coulter. They well, we, would have been much, we would have been very much the, the, the poor relations, mind you. you know, they, <laughs> they would have advised the for Daniel. Only would advise for Daniel. Plus, I mean, we were probably not looking our best. We were looking in a corner, I think, probably drinking oh. whiskeys to cure our hangovers. Well, many's the reference to little glasses of jemmies that yeah. were made during the week. You know, and I'd say you could probably write a whole memoir of those little stories as well. And I haven't finished your own memoir. In fact, I've only just started Bruised never broken. You're signing copies of that in Cork on the 16th in Mahon Point. We'll give people the details of that a little bit later as well. But I've only just started. So I know that part of the opening chapters of your childhood include references from your dad's diaries. Yeah. And what an incredible resource and treasure to have in your family. Like loads of people start a diary. Few people maintain it. Some would never want to discover it. But an incredible, incredible yeah. diary. And here's the thing. I, mean, I didn't even know that it existed mm. up until when I started doing my research. For, when I finally sat down to start doing research, when I finally committed myself, signed on a dotted line with the publisher, said, OK, I'm going to do it. Having kicked the can down the road for years about doing an autobiography, I finally said, you know, I have our father's journal. And I said, I didn't even know it existed. She said, when he retired, he wrote a journal. I wrote a diary going right back to his early days as a teenager in, in Strangford and County Down and his trials and tribulations and trying to join the police force and etc. etc. and being one of a handful of Catholics in, mm. the, in the RUC. So she sent down the journal and you're absolutely right. It was a great resource. It was, it was golden. I was able to refer to it just to recreate what it was like in those times and I was, I was so grateful to have laid my hands on it. But you also have just the most gorgeous descriptions of your own childhood and your own family. And like I was really surprised and shocked to find out that you weren't the first Phil Coulter in your family. Not not the first Philip. Like your father was Phil mm. before him also, I believe. But mm. but you weren't the first sibling. No, here's a curious thing. I knew I knew that our firstborn, who was also Philip, had, had died in infancy from, from diphtheria. And again, I hadn't realized the horror of, of that whole experience until I read my father's journal of how it was, because it was such, the regard as being so highly contagious, that when the baby was diagnosed, finally having been misdiagnosed from several visits by the local doctor, finally was diagnosed with having diphtheria, which was a lethal, a potentially lethal disease. The baby was whisked away from them to the fever hospital, the isolation hospital, and they weren't allowed to visit. The best they could do was just to put coins into the, the spot at the payphone at the end of the bridge in Derry and call the hospital and ask for some updates into how the baby was. So it was kind of very dark and very very cruel. But that yeah that that the, the baby who died was 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 Philip. I only discovered when I read. I hadn't realised up until I read my dad's journal that the baby was also Philip Michael. So it was it was a very very odd feeling. Extremely. And, and that was such a sad part of the, the story to read. You know, he was only a few weeks old. Your parents weren't allowed to see him. And, and it was actually a woman in the local shop yeah. who broke the news to your parents. It had become a pattern for them when they were so concerned about oh. the baby being in there for weeks that, that uh, their, their daily pattern was to go to nine o'clock mass. On the way back from mass, they would call into the local store to get the change for the payphone at the end of the bridge. And when they called in that particular morning to get the change for the phone, they were told that a colleague of my dad's, another, another policeman, when they were at Mass, 
had called to say that the baby had died. It was it was very very. I mean, they were then they got the bus across to the fever hospital in the waterside and were ushered to the to the mortuary. My dad's description of the mortuary is just somewhere you wouldn't put a dog and just see mm. the, the poor baby lying there. Dad said he looked as if it hadn't been washed since since they they had last seen eyes on him. And, his hair was all matted and whatever. It was just... It was, just it break was, your heart. Just bre- heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, and, you know, the title of your book is Bruised, Never Broken. Yes. And, and that even encompasses that first chapter because in childhood, that first chapter, you do have, you know, all the descriptions of, let's face it, Phil, tough times, mm. but interspersed with gorgeous humour and anecdotes that would just, you know, make you smile. And it's, you know, one page... The toughness comes through, and in another page, there's a gorgeous little, little story and, and memory. And we've spoken before, and I know I've asked you to tell us before different stories about your first single and getting the phone call from the record company, and and all of that. You've gone through your time in London and college, and each decade, and and the amazing things it brought through. And of course, you couldn't cover any book or memory without all the various stories of Eurovision, the hits you had, the the second places that. Yeah. <laughs> meeting your wife in Eurovision or, you know, working together with Geraldine in Eurovision, everything, the whole thing. It's just the most incredible story. I am so looking forward to getting stuck into the well, rest I'm of it. I'm delighted to hear you're enjoying it. It was, it was, it was, it's the single biggest project I've ever, I've ever taken on. And it was, it was at times, at times it was very rewarding. At times it was quite distressing, to be very honest, because, you know what's happening when you when you write a memoir to be trying to try and get as accurate as you can. And one bit of advice don't be given was Phil, you've got to be honest. Mm. You've got to yeah. be honest. He said because your readers will know if you're kind of shimmying around something that is that you know they'll want to know what the real truth was. So I determined that that I w- I would try and be as brutally honest as I could. So when you do that, you know, with a couple of family tragedies when my my sister and brother were both drowned in Locksville within a, a, around about a year of, yeah. of, of each other. So when you revisit something like that. You know, when when it happens to begin with, how do you survive? Well, you kind of find a place in your soul, in your heart, in your soul where you can lock those memories away. They're there for you to, to visit when the mood takes you, but you lock them away. You don't visit them every day of your life. So when you're when you're recreating those kind of events, you know, to try and be to try and be as accurate as as, as you can, you revisit the time, you revisit the place, and you try and revisit the emotions. And you know what? It's like it's like picking at an old wound, you know. You're picking at the old wound, and of course, it's going to start bleeding again. Mm. And that's that's what happened. On one extreme, you have got that uh, when you're when you're leafing through your life. On the other extreme, you, you you realize just how blessed, how fortunate you've been to have some of the experiences that I've had, both professionally and and personally, and the people that I have met. You know, even from my early days, get the education that I did, which is a as a Catholic growing up in in unionist dominated Northern Ireland. I mean, to get a proper education, to get a university scholarship and to aspire to another level was was a real gift. And, and it's something I really still appreciate. Yeah, but you went to a great school. I mean, you, you have a little nugget there about sometime many years later when you were in a reception in Washington and looking around the room, a whole load of you were alumni of the same St. Columns school. St. Columns, yeah, there's a great picture in the book, which, uh, which I treasure, uh, was that from that very night. Where all us X and Columns boys were there, there was there was two Nobel Prize winners. They, had, they weren't Nobel Prize winners at that stage, but they were to become Nobel Prize winners. John Hume, Seamus Heaney, Brian Friel, the playwright, myself, and who wasn't there would be the like of Paul Brady, Eamon McCann, a bunch of others. There you go. That's some gathering. You know, when you think about writing a memoir, it's it's 
it's utterly different because obviously you've spent your whole life writing, writing music and writing lyrics mm. and drawing on lots of those emotions and memories, yeah. certainly for some of your more poignant pieces and more personal pieces as opposed to the commissioned mm. music. Yeah. But uh, a very, very different experience then to go back and write a very memoir. different, very different. And when I, when I signed on to do that in the early discussions with the publishers, they said, well, you know, you have your career and you're obviously busy, you're still touring, you're still writing, you're still doing this and that. So we would suggest maybe we can recommend a first-class ghostwriter mm. to help you through this process. And I said, well, thanks. That's nice of you to think of me. But no, I said, for me to take on a ghostwriter, I would feel that's kind of cheating. Because as you rightly said just now, for 55 years, I've, I've made my living from writing. You know, I mean, it, okay, it's on a different, a different kind of level, different scope, writing songs, writing lyrics, writing pieces for, for, for the stage, etc. Never in, a kind of a, in this kind of a scale. But I said, no, I have to do this. I mean, I have to do it because I would feel it would be cheating if I let someone else do the, do the heavy lifting, you know. So I, I wrote it all out by longhand, every single word, and that's like 90,000 words. So it's a long and, a, and, a, and quite an arduous undertaking. Incredible, though. The most fantastic family history, personal history, musical history. I hope you spill the beans on a couple of different things behind the scenes as you go through it as well. Oh, there are, there are, <laughs> there are, a, there are a few stories which, is, which up, up until now have remained untold. Yes. Yes. OK, so but also not only are you going to be in Cork on the 16th for that book signing in Matten Point off Handfield. Do you know what time that is? It's 12 o'clock. Eastern to 12 o'clock. Always twelve o'clock. And I am becoming something of a veteran of these signing sessions, which is a whole new, a whole new enterprise for me. And I'm really enjoying them because it's it's very it's very different. Mm. So the the signing is in Eastern. They were doing the Opera House, which is the sixteenth. Now by, I was just looking at the schedule, Elmarie, and I I see that I am in Cork for a bunch of dates over the next over the next while because on the day before the Opera House on the fifteenth I'm in Bantry, and then in December I'm in Ballymaloo on the first. I'm in Inchidani on the 7th. On New Year's Eve, I'm in Charleville. So there's five dates in you. <laughs> I mean, somebody said to me when they looked at the schedule, what's your fascination with Cork? I said, I, I, not a fascination. I just love being down there. I think I get the Cork people, and I think they get me. It's as simple as that. From early days, I've, I felt a nice rapport in Cork. And I'll tell you why. There are great, great parallels, great similarities between Cork and Derry. You've we're, always said that. We yes, are both yeah. the kind of we are both the poor relation. You know, Cork's the poor relation to Dublin. We're the poor relation to Belfast. <laughs> huge, huge history of deprivation and unemployment. Also, a huge, huge, very, very strong tradition of music. You know, Cork had an opera house. Derry used to have an opera house, mm-hmm. and those music traditions still stay strong. So it's no wonder. It's no wonder that I that I, that I, I feel comfortable in Cork. And my mother. My mother was born in the markets in Belfast. My grandfather was a blacksmith. He used to shoe the horses, would pull the carts carrying fruit and veg in and out. So for me, it's part of my DNA, that whole market thing. You know, And all of my travels, I'll always seek out where the local market is just to walk through and get that feeling. And there's none better than the English market in Cork. Always welcome. And plainly, you have so many dates that people have plenty of opportunities to, to catch up with you over the course of the next couple of months. Phil, sometimes it's just as easy to let the music do the talking, but you could do the talking for two hours or more if yeah. we let you. Well, that's, see, that's a lovely thing. About, now, in the Opera House, for example, I just feel so relaxed in there. Yeah. That'll be, that'll be, it's called Phil Coulter and Friends. So apart from my lovely wife, Geraldine, 
and a wonderful, wonderful singer from Galway called Dawn Stiff. Here's the story. I have to tell you this very quickly. When, when I was preparing, we have a new album out called Return to Tranquility, the same name as, as the mm-hmm. tour. And I'm thinking, Phil, by this stage, you must have recorded all the great Irish songs. So I'm doing some research to find some, some of the songs. And, and uh, friends of mine said, have you never recorded Shanna Golden? Now, I was only vaguely aware of the song, so I checked it out, as you do these days, on YouTube. And there's a version by this singer called Dawn Stiff. Not only did I fall in love with the song, but this guy's voice just completely blew me away, gave me goosebumps. And that, when that happens to me, I know I'm onto something special. So Dawn Stiff, and then topping the bill, my old Sagosha, my old sparring partner who played with me for so many years when, during the days when I was working with the Dubliners, John Sheehan yeah. is, is a special guest. I'm already visualizing when I call John Sheehan on stage to join me when I do Scorn Not His Simplicity, to hear John Sheehan playing the same lines that he played behind Luke Kelly when we recorded it first. It's just going to be a lovely recreation of something that was quite historic. Yeah, electric. Phil, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Been my pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I look forward to our next chat. Take care. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. Bye-bye.